0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor
1: Sam Allen. We walked with Ruth and, and, well, she chose to leave everyone and everything behind, well, so that she could follow after and serve and, and know the true and living God, the God of Israel. And we've seen the wonderful plans that God had for her. This Moabite widow, she's no longer gonna be called Ruth the Moabite.
0: Well, it's time for Pastor Sam to wrap up the Book of Ruth with the last parts of Chapter 4. Now We've seen so much in the lives of this prodigal family. They were nearly destroyed, but they found restoration and redemption back in the house of bread under the shelter of the wings of the Lord.
1: All the people at the gate and the elder said, "'We are witnesses, and the Lord make the woman "'who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, "'the two who built the house of Israel. "'And may you prosper in Ephrathah "'and be famous in Bethlehem. "'May your house be like the house of Perez, "'whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring "'which the Lord will give you from this young woman.'" The witnesses not only affirm the outcome, but they go on, and I love this, to pronounce a blessing on the couple. And there's sort of this prophetic prayer. They, they recall past blessings, and, and they mention a few people. we got to at least delve into them for a moment, because they move from that to petitioning God for future blessings. Now, again, the focus here, it's on children, it's on the future, it's on the family, the community, the nation, the kingdom ultimately, they mentioned first Rachel and Leah. You know, these are the moms ultimately of the kids who would be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, um, you know, they were either moms or stepmoms to those or, you know, adopted moms to those children. And it's a little bit complex as you go back and read through the story. But, but what these guys are saying is, listen, God bless those women with these kids, and now we have 12 tribes. May God bless you two in the very same way. Fatra, it means the place of fruitfulness. So it's a, a nice Prayer, may you prosper, or, or a nice proclamation, may you prosper, may you be prosperous in the place of fruitfulness. Bethlehem, you should remember from our first studies, means the house of bread. Now, Perez, whom they mention, he was born to Tamar in Judah. And there's an irony here, if you're familiar at all with this story. She had been married to one of Judah's sons and and well anyway son dies and and it's the very same law that's being applied here that well that Judah decides he's got this much younger son and and uh you know she's gonna wait and they're gonna end up marrying because well if the brother dies and doesn't produce an offspring then the other brother was supposed to marry her. That's what's happening here in this very story. So I kind of find it ironic because what happens is he decides he's not going to let it happen. He's not going to have his son uh, marry this gal. And there's some stuff that goes on in between that's pretty ugly too. First, first son, the second son. Now we're, now we're down to this one. And so anyway, it says that may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now it doesn't say anything negative. It just says this is what happened big house, lots of offspring. By the way, these guys all in the lineage and genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Maybe that's really why they're there, but but anyway, here's what happens because he's not giving his son to her, she dresses up like a harlot and and because they covered themselves in those days, he comes and he actually has sex with her, produces a child by her. And then when he finds out she's pregnant, well, when he finds out his daughter-in-law's pregnant, not realizing she's actually the harlot that he'd been into. Well, she was no harlot at all. This was uh, not, not justifying it. I'm just saying it's a, a one-time horrible sin. But, but it's not like she was out there doing this for a living. No, she tricks him personally. And then he he actually says, "Well, this this gal, you know, my daughter-in-law, she she's got to die. I mean, she can't go playing the harlot. She was married to my my son, and so she had taken some stuff from him in order to." You know, say, well, he didn't have payment, so just leave your staff and some stuff, and then later we'll trade it. And when they came back, they couldn't find her, they couldn't find it. So she sends the stuff back to him and says, Hey, just let him know it's it's the guy who owns this stuff. He's the dad. And when he sees it, he's like, Oh my gosh, you know, what have I done? Now the whole thing is weird. It's bizarre. I mean, that's why I didn't read it to you. I just told it to you, because we can get through it faster. But <laughs> But the bottom line, and this is really the bottom line here, is how often in Scripture have we seen and do we continue to see God overcoming the sins and the failures of his chosen people to accomplish his plans and fulfill his purposes. It's not like he was overlooking the sin. No, there is always judgment for sin. He says the way of the transgressor is hard. And I've come to believe him. Rather, the transgression seems small or great. The way of the transgressor is hard. There's pain always when there's sin. And so in any case, I see him here as they mess it up one way after another, after another, after another. And he's like, I've got that. I can cover that. I can fix that. I can deal with that. And I'm thinking, how often has he done the same for us? How many times have we been in a mess that we created And God's just come through and shown us that when we're faithless, He's faithful. When we falter and fail, He's right there to make things right. Well, it gets better at this point, even though, and it's got to be a little weird. You know what this reminds me of? The guy who gets up to give a toast at the wedding, and he starts saying all this inappropriate stuff. Now, I know that their, their heart is right, but... I don't know. It would be like if you had these people in your family and they'd done these horrific things. And there when you're being toasted at the wedding, they're like, yeah, and remember so and so. And may the Lord bless you the way he did. And you're thinking, oh, don't bring them up. You know, (laughs) why do you have to remind us? But but the heart of what's going on here is a good thing. In verse 13, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, I highlighted those. She became his wife, because this is what it was all about from the very beginning. And if you haven't tracked with us through the story, she was this Moabitess living in Moab. They were cursed to the 10th generation, they were a cursed people. And, and, and Ruth, well, she comes to know the true and living God through her mother-in-law, who had been brought to Moab during a time of famine. We'll come back to her in a minute. But, but I just see the whole way with all of the things that were going wrong, all of the sins that were committed. The Lord was right there, his hand in it. And he's saying, I've got a plan for Ruth. And I've got a plan for Boaz. Now I'm going to put them together. And, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. Now why are they, you know, praising the Lord to Naomi? She's the one who'd lost her two sons, who'd lost her husband, who went out full and came back empty, who went out blessed and came back bitter. And now they're just saying, Hey, blessed be the Lord. He hasn't left you without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter in law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. I find this interesting. And if you've been tracking this whole thing of the kinsman redeemer, you know, the, the near relative, the savior in the picture. Well, it's been Boaz. But now they're saying the child is a savior. And I like that too. I see this glorious picture forming as, as they're seeing past the marriage. They're seeing past the, the pregnancy. They're seeing past the birth. They're saying this child is destined for greatness. This child will be a blessing to you. This child will be better to you than, well, than you could have even imagined. Now, There is no doubt Boaz loved Ruth. He proved it by marrying her. By the way, it's an action worthy of imitation. Fellas, if you love a gal, marry her. You don't try her out. She's not something you give a test drive, you know. I'll see if I get along with her and all of the stupid things that people do today. Marriage, completeness, conception, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And I'm reminded again, God had purposed and performed the very first marriage ceremony. You remember, we touched on it. God made Eve from Adam brought Eve to Adam, and it was God that put the two together. It was God who told them they would become one flesh. And he gave them interesting commands. He said, a man's to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Here's the amazing thing. When he first commands it, there's no parents to leave. He's basically telling them, this is how it's going to work from here on out. This was always God's plan. It was always his plan. And then he commanded them something else. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. He's just saying, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, I'm reminded of something else. I want you to turn over to John's gospel for just a second. It's in John chapter 2. I want you to see it. It's one of my favorite little little stories. And and we have time tonight. This book, well, chapter 4 is short. And so I wanted you to see it. It's another marriage scene. And since marriage seems to be the theme, you should know that of all the miracles Jesus worked, and John was aware of all of them. He didn't write somewhere early on. He, he, he wrote late and he was aware he'd been there. He saw all Jesus did. When he writes his gospel, he chooses specific miracles because he wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He wants us to know who he is and what he could do. And Jesus did an awful lot of amazing things and John recorded some of the most radical. But the very first miracle that that he records, well, it happens at a wedding feast. And, and so, We read on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots of stone, according to the matter of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim and he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, what I get from this, and here's the reason I wanted you to go to it, is that Jesus, well, he honors these guys, first of all, by showing up at the wedding participating in the wedding. It's, it's a feast that's going on, but there's something else and it's also practical and it's the main reason I wanted to go here. Not only to remind us that it's not just that God in the Old Testament says, hey, I'm all about marriage and for marriage and it's my primary institution, but Jesus honors this couple by being there and then providing. Now, this is sort of a, a mini crisis management seminar. So I, I want you to see it as that. It, it'll only take a second, but or a minute or five. But but, but uh, you know, bottom line is God has blessed me over the years by applying exactly what happens here to so many situations that, well, just seemed well beyond me. The, the three things that take place, I want you to see it. First, they take the problem to Jesus. It's actually Mary, his mother, who does it. They ran out of wine. It's there in verse 3. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, don't let his response trouble you. He's not saying, I don't care. What's that to me? It almost sounds like that. He's just saying, it's not my hour. This isn't my time. There's there's a time for everything. But, But then his mother turns to the servants. And this is the second thing that I do in a crisis, if I'm thinking clear and remembering, and hopefully you'll do the same. We take the problem to Jesus. Then the second thing she says, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I've noticed over the years, people come in and they're in a crisis. And I'm like, well, let's I don't really know what to do. I know the Lord has a plan let's uh, let's seek Him so we'll be in the word and we'll be in prayer and 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 we'll come across that. Well here's the solution this is exactly dealing with the problem. here's exactly what God says about the issue. so the the deal is bring it to Jesus, find out what he says and, and whatever he says, do it. Now this is usually where it breaks down for us because we have so many excuses, so many reasons. And, and, and look at what they're told to do. Take six water pots of stone. Now, now they're 20 or 30 gallons. These are big things. And, and he's saying, fill them up, then take it to the master and just give him some of it. How's that going to work? I mean, you have to put yourself in their place. They don't know a miracle's going to happen. And, and, and I would suggest more often than not, The Lord gives us something to do, just like with Adam. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Adam looks at Eve. I guess I could do that. And it wasn't like hard work or laborsome or how do I figure it out or are you sure? It was, yeah, okay. And I think more often than not, almost without exception, when Jesus gives me something to do, it's actually something I can do. And if he commands me to do something I can't do, and I mentioned this recently, well, he always empowers me to do it. You see that when when he tells the man whose hand was withered, stretch out your hand. The guy could have, you know, in his embarrassment, said, well, I'm not going to do that. People stare and, and you know it's withered and why are you trying to embarrass me? No, he says, stretch out your hand. Or he could have said, well, that's impossible. Don't you know it's withered? Of course he did. And when he says, stretch out your hand, the very act of obedience... Well, he was healed in the process. Those lepers come to him and he says, go wash, just go wash. And, and, and then they come back. Well, not all of them, but, but the ones that come back are the one that comes back, he's like, hey, where's the rest? What's up with this? But, but the point is, he gives them something they can do and then he does something amazing as they just do the little thing he gives them to do. So the first part in crisis management and learning to deal with life's problems take the problem to Jesus why he knows what to do about it and he's able to do something second thing do what he says and then the third just trust him to do what's best if i come to him and and i do what he says i've got to trust him for the outcome and so if we've come this far okay it doesn't make any sense we'll fill these up we'll go take water to the guy i mean How's that going to work? Well, and I love that when he tasted the water, it wasn't a trick, you see. It wasn't magic. It was a miracle. It was the beginning of signs. It manifested, we're told, his glory. That was the ultimate purpose. Yeah, he was meeting a need. He was showing his care. He was showing his concern. It was a serious thing. In a feast in that day, a wedding feast to run out of provision, I'm thinking maybe these guys just didn't have a lot. And more people were there. You know, Jesus and his disciples were there. From what I hear, they were gluttons and wine bibbers. So maybe they were the one reason they ran out. But no, I I don't know. That's just what they said. They said it even about Jesus. But the the whole deal is here he is meeting the need, caring for him. And and I love the picture. It's just so God. It's, It's so much like him to be there and, and meet the need and, and deal with the issues. Well, back to our passage, back to Ruth 4, verse 16, 416. So Naomi took the child, laid it on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David." Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron Ram, and Ram Aminadab, and Aminadab Nation, and Nation Salmon, and Salmon Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. You know, beyond all of the practical and prophetic, the other things we've considered and looked at together in the book of Ruth, there is something else. This book is a historical bridge between the time of the judges and then the things that began to transpire in First and 2 Samuel. In the book of Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we know the reason for it. There was no king in Israel. Now, God was king. God was on the throne. But, but they'd stopped listening to and, and longing for him. They were doing what they wanted, not what he wanted So though he was there, well, they had disregarded him, disregarded his commands. So we go from no king in Israel to man's king in Israel. First Samuel, we're going to study it. That's our very next book. And we're going to see the first king that rules and reigns in Israel, Saul. And then when we get further in, 2 Samuel and on, it's David, God's king, ruling and reigning in Israel. And I find it interesting that Ruth concludes, doesn't mention what's coming as far as Saul or, or those issues. No, it's all about getting us to David. And when you get into the genealogies early in the Gospels, it goes from David... All the way down to Jesus. Well, the book ends with a record of just what God had in mind for this family. And, and I believe it's the same picture for us. He's looking at generation, as we mentioned last week or the week before. He's looking not just at our children, but our children's children. And, and if he tarries, our children's children's children. And who knows? Who knows? As these guys looked at little Obed, they couldn't know that, well, this was all leading to King David. And I look in our nursery, and I look at those kids, and I think, what's God going to do with these kids? What's his plan? What's his purpose? Because their lives, well, he has them mapped out. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Well, finally, a couple things to consider, and we'll have a little extended worship and praise and prayer together. We've been looking at the lives basically of three people in four seasons of life. And, and we watched Naomi go through a season of suffering because she did the right thing. She submitted to her husband who was doing the wrong thing. He led her out of the place of bread, the house of bread, took her to Moab. He dies there. The boys die there. She grows bitter in the process. But all of that, Now that we see the end of the story, the rest of the story, we see that God was with her and he was watching over her and his plans for her were good and although her husband failed her, God was with her and for her. We walked with Ruth and, and well she chose to leave everyone and everything behind well so that she could follow after and serve and And know the true and living God, the God of Israel. And we've seen the wonderful plans that God had for her. This Moabite widow, she's no longer going to be called Ruth the Moabite. She's now Ruth, well, the wife of Boaz. And we've learned from Boaz that, well, love blesses just to bless He gave selflessly. He watched out for her. He protected her. He provided for her long before she responded to him. And we see in him that picture of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus who, well, when we were just going our own way or when we were just following in the fields, just trying to eat and survive function, he was loving us and watching over us and blessing us and caring for us. Now that we've responded I'm reminded there's yet one more wedding feast lying ahead. Well, maybe some in our lives as our kids grow and marry and such. But but I'm talking about that one promise to us where the bride of Christ will be feasting in his presence, redeemed by him, sharing at the marriage supper. Of
0: the Lamb. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey with Naomi and Ruth, who went from being lost and separated from God and nearly overwhelmed with grief, to being great grandparents of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that in their darkest hours, the Lord already had a magnificent plan for them should be encouragement to us all should we ever find ourselves lost in Moab. and your peace it fills my soul and your gifts
1: of salvation in your son